So this is our second episode in our teaching series on the question, is it a sin to be gay? And this is part of a series that we've been doing lately on big questions that many unbelievers ask. And I would say many believers as well. And this really is, I think, the big question in our culture right now is talking about the relationship between uh, the evangelical church and the LGBT community. And really the question that we're going to focus on here is, what do I say when someone in my oikos, in my 8 to 15 people that God has strategically and supernaturally placed in my life, what do I do when one of them says, I'm gay? And I just want to give a quick overview here of the road ahead of what we're talking about in this series. The first week we had sort of an overview of some major issues and the two major positions. This week and next week, we'll be talking about the question, what does the Bible say? We want to get very clear about what the Bible says on the topic of homosexuality. And then finally, we'll wrap up this series with some practical questions. And that is a focus on how do we love? I think most Christians are in agreement that we ought to love everyone. What we're not in agreement about is what does love look like? So the first thing we want to do just very briefly here is review the two Christian views on being a same-sex attracted Christian. And we said last time that we could even add to this slide the word two evangelical Christian approaches because this is no longer just merely a liberal versus conservative issue. There are a growing number of evangelicals, we call them progressive evangelicals, who are advocating for one of these views. So view number one is what I'm calling historic or traditional Christianity. And this is the view that has been taught throughout the history of the church. And we could summarize it this way. Homosexuality is one of thousands of manifestations of the flesh or our Adamic nature, our nature from Adam. And it must be crucified just like any other manifestation of the flesh, such as gluttony, gossip, or adultery. We're not trying to just isolate LGBT issues as being the worst sin in the world or worse than any other sins. We're simply trying to understand the nature of the sin in the traditional position. And this is the position that I will be advocating for, is the position that I hold and uh, have been on a journey with investigating for about 25 years. The second view among Christians is what we're calling the revisionist view. And we could also call this the progressive evangelical view or the mainline liberal view. All of those would be appropriate names for this view. But I'm going to call it the revisionist view in this series. And in this view, the major component is that the biblical passages that seem to condemn homosexuality have either been mistranslated misinterpreted or misunderstood. This is a view that is held by people that that name the name of Jesus. Many of them have a very high view of scripture, but they're taking the position that a more excellent understanding of the scriptures leads us to believe that same-sex marriage can in fact be holy. Now, I want to say at this point that we talked about last week is that the revisionist position really goes against both scripture and tradition. And I talked a little bit about the tradition part of it last week. And I know that many of us have kind of an adverse feeling sometimes to the word tradition. But really what I'm talking about is those core beliefs that Christians have always historically believed and are part of this body of core beliefs, of orthodox Christian beliefs, is part of really what it means to be a Christian. And that we don't have the freedom to redefine those key doctrines. Today we're going to look at the scripture part of that assertion. And I'm going to try to make the case that the revisionist position goes against scripture. I think that because the revisionist 
is bringing forth a new argument. Really, the burden of proof is on them to provide a compelling case that the church has, in fact, misinterpreted, misunderstood, or mistranslated the Bible for the last 2,000 years. They are bringing about the case of the misunderstanding. And so they need to provide a compelling reason to overturn the historical traditional position. Now, I want to make a short comment here about the nature of argumentation, because so many people in our culture do not understand the nature of objective truth. And what we are going to be arguing this week and next week is the case for the traditional position. And what I am attempting to argue is something called objective truth. In other words, it's something that is true regardless of whether or not I agree with it or whether you agree with it. It's just true. It's as true as this water bottle sitting here in my hand. Whether or not you believe in this water bottle will not change the physical reality that this water bottle is right here. And that if I take a drink, I'm going to get wet. I'm going to have water go in my mouth. These are objective facts in reality. Now, I know that it's not common in our culture anymore to believe that moral truths can also be just as objectively true as that water bottle. But historically speaking, and if you are a Christian and you are watching this, that is a part of what it means to be a Christian. That there is certain invisible furniture in the universe that is part of the moral laws. And that these moral laws reside in the mind of God. And God, as the creator, has the right to make these moral laws. And he has given us scripture to help us discover what these moral laws are. We do not have the freedom to redefine morality based on our personal happiness. But this is the the language of our culture right now is that we live in an emotion-driven culture that advocates personal happiness as the highest ideal. If something doesn't make me feel happy and authentic and fulfilled, I, that's probably a sign that it's wrong. That is the message of our culture. And I want to tell you today, very plainly, that if you are a Christian and you speak like that and you speak those kinds of words, you are reflecting our culture and not scripture. And I know that this is going to be a very hard um, statement for some of you, but I would like it if you would consider the, the, the possibility that you have been mistaught or that you have misunderstood part of what it means to be a Christian. What it has always meant from the beginning of Christianity is that some things are objectively true. Now, when we talk about objective truth, I don't want us to uh, think about truth in such a way that is abstract or not connected to our lives. We're talking about things that are very intimate and very deeply personal for many people. And, And ideas and truths have consequences to how we live. And that's why we're engaged in this very important conversation. Because I actually believe that the things we're going to talk about matter in people's lives. And so we are not talking about this for the sake of winning a debate or winning an argument. We're talking about these things so that we can be very, very clear about what it means to be a Christian. And what is God's best for his people? These are profoundly important questions. When we talk about objective truth, we're talking about matters of true and false propositions. We're not talking about matters of opinion. And so in this conversation, someone is going to be right, someone is going to be wrong, or we could both be wrong. Those are the options, but we cannot both be right. 
And so the question before us today is when we think about the question is, can same-sex marriages be considered a holy union in the Christian worldview? The, the, that question is not going to be based, the answer to that question is not going to be based on our opinion or on our emotions. It's going to be based on the best that we can do to interpret the scriptures using these tools. Okay, now we're going to turn to surveying the biblical data. We're going to just look at the passages in the Old Testament today. In the next uh, installment in the series, we'll look at the New Testament. So we're going to start um, at the very beginning with Genesis in just a minute here. But I want to review very quickly the tools for good Bible interpretation. When we're studying scripture as Christians, we want to take into account a variety of tools that we look at when we are closely examining what the scriptures have to say. We look at things like the original languages. In the case of the Old Testament, we're talking about Hebrew. In the case of the New Testament, we're talking about Greek. Uh, we look at things like context, what's surrounding the, the, uh, the verse, what's the paragraph, what's the big idea, what's the chapter, what's the book, what's the author. All of these things are about context. We look at the genre of literature. What type of literature is it? Is it intended to be interpreted more historically or literally or poetically or as a, as a proverb or as a parable? What is the type of literature? We consider things like the cultural background. This is what uh, the young man was talking about before. He's making an argument based on the cultural background that the, the type of homosexuality that's condemned in the Bible is actually rape. It's not analogous to the type of homosexuality that we see today in our culture. Uh, another tool in our toolbox is historical theology. And this is what we talked about last week, is what is the historical interpretation of this passage? How has this verse been interpreted throughout the church's history? That has significant weight because, again, we don't have the freedom just to redefine things because we don't like them. All right, so let's look at our first passage together. It's Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And I would like to encourage you to turn there to follow along and to see and to check everything that I'm going to say. Now, we've looked at before in this class that... Uh, God makes certain statements or descriptions about the creation. He calls things in chapter 1 several times that the creation is good and it's very good. But then when we get to chapter 2 in verse 18, he says there's something that is not good. It is not good that the man is alone. And so what does God do? He creates a woman for the man. And he assigns them some tasks. We see here in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, if I've counted these correctly, I think humans have three tasks. To be fruitful and increase, to subdue the earth, and to rule over it. And we don't have time to explore each of these very rich concepts, but these are the tasks that God has told the man and the woman that they are to do together. So now, how does the revisionist look at Genesis 1 and 2? So we're going to listen to a clip right now uh, from a gay apologist, a revisionist apologist, and his name is Matthew Vines, and I've provided here the link so you can see his whole video in its entirety. We're just going to play one small clip where he talks about his approach to Genesis 1 and 2. So let's watch that now. In the first two chapters of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth, plants, animals, man, and everything in the earth. And he declares everything in creation to be either good or very good, except for one thing. In Genesis 2, Verse 18, God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. 
I will make a helper suitable for him. And yes, the suitable helper or partner that God makes for Adam is Eve, a woman. And a woman is a suitable partner for the vast majority of men, for straight men. But for gay men, that isn't the case. For them, a woman is not a suitable partner. And in all the ways that a woman is a suitable partner for straight men, for gay men, it's another gay man who's a suitable partner. And the same is true for lesbian women. For them, it is another lesbian woman who's a suitable partner. But the necessary consequence of the traditional teaching on homosexuality is that even though gay people have suitable partners, they must reject them. And they must live alone for their whole lives without a spouse or family of their own. We are now declaring good, the very first thing in scripture that God declared not good, for the man to be forced to be alone. And the fruit that this teaching has borne has been deeply wounding and destructive. This is a major problem. By holding to the traditional interpretation, we are now contradicting the Bible's own teachings. The Bible teaches that it is not good for the man to be forced to be alone. And yet now we are teaching that it is. Scripture says that good teachings will bear good fruit. But now the reverse is occurring, and we say it's not a problem. Something here is off. Something is out of place. And it's because of these problems and these contradictions that more and more Christians have been going back to Scripture and re-examining the six verses that have formed the basis for an absolute condemnation of same-sex relationships. Now, let's look at, for a minute, uh, the major features of Matthew Vines's argument. Uh, the first one is that a woman is a suitable partner for a straight man, but a man is a suitable partner for a gay man or a lesbian for a lesbian. So here, the, the focus is on the suitable partner and what that means. So Matthew Vines would say it's not about sex or marriage. It's about having a suitable partner. For gays, a suitable partner is a same-sex relationship. And secondly, they would say there is something inherently not good about telling a same-sex attracted person that their love cannot have a home. Now, I know Matthew Vines didn't use that phraseology of having a home for his love, but that's one that I've heard many gay apologists use, so I've put that in there. And so the idea here is that he used this phrase a couple of times that we are forcing him to live alone without a spouse. And he calls this bad fruit, and he makes an allusion here to Jesus' teaching against false prophets in Matthew chapter 7. And I won't go into why I think that that has no relevance for this conversation. I think it's fairly evident. If you go look in the context of Matthew 7, it has no bearing on uh, this discussion. Um, but these would be the two major features of the revisionist position. Now let's look at the traditional position. Well, first, I would say that God made an azer, in Hebrew, it's a co-laborer, it's a co-warrior, and together they would accomplish their divinely given tasks. But I want us to notice what type of Izer this is. God patterned the relationship, the construction, the building of Adam and Eve after what he had already made in the animal realm, and that is male and female pairs. This is the way that God has set up the natural order. He has set it up to be pairings of male and female. God met the needs of the man by creating a woman, someone different than him, that had different giftings and different abilities who could help him accomplish this task to subdue the earth, to multiply and fill the earth, and to rule the earth. He did not create another man or a mere image. He created a complement to the man. 
I would also point out that it is not anatomically possible for two women or two men to become one flesh and have a family. The anatomy doesn't work that way. Now, I'm not talking about adoption or modern medical science or what that can do with surrogates. I'm just talking about looking at it from a, from a purely uh, what we call natural law standpoint and asking the question, how has God set up the system so that his people, all the people of the earth, can follow these three commands that he gives them, these three jobs he gives them. It's not possible to multiply and fill the earth for the two to become one flesh if it's two men or two women. The anatomy simply does not work that way. And so for Matthew Vines to say that the man is a suitable partner for another gay man is to miss the very purpose of the Izer in the first place. It's not a suitable partner to be a companion or just a mate. It's a suitable partner to be able to fulfill these tasks that the Lord has given. Another response I would point out to the revisionist is that Jesus reaffirms in Matthew chapter 19, which we're going to look at next week, that the male and the female is part of the created order. And in fact, he quotes this passage back in Genesis chapter 2. And again, I think that it's a very difficult road to try to take the position that God is okay with gay marriage when he defines what a marriage is in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus defines it as one man and one woman. And he, again, he talks about the two of them becoming one flesh. A man and a man cannot become one flesh. Two women cannot become one flesh. I have one more response for the revisionist. And I don't want this question to come across as sarcastic or mean-spirited. It's just in what we call, in logic, we're kind of teasing out the argument a little bit and we're asking for uh, counterexamples. And a question I might ask is, how would you preclude intergenerational love advocates? This is what we more commonly call pedophiles, but they call themselves intergenerational love people. Or people who promote bestiality from saying that they feel like children or animals are their suitable partner. Because to me, that seems like a fair question to ask. Because if the primary issue is about the way I feel and not feeling deeply wounded and not being forced to live alone, if those are the values on which Matthew Vines is making his, his case, I think it's a fair question to ask, uh, how he would respond to people that promote these other points of view, um, that maybe that's what would bring meaning to their life as a suitable partner. And if, if Matthew Vines is going to redefine the created order with two men or two women as being an option, I don't see a real reason, I don't see an, a, a logical reason that advocates who promote intergenerational love or bestiality or incest uh, from making a similar argument. So I would want to press into that to ask them to, and to probe that, uh, what their reasoning is, why they would preclude those things. Okay, now let's look at Genesis chapter 19. Now this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is a story of God's judgment against an evil culture. And this is also the first mention of same-sex behavior in Scripture. So we're going to want to give careful attention to this. And we're going to start off by looking at the revisionist position on Genesis 19. So once again, we're going to hear from Matthew Vines and to hear uh, his analysis of Genesis 19. Let's go to that clip. The two angels arrive in Sodom still in the form of men. Lot invites them to spend the night in his home, and he prepares a meal for them. But beginning in verse 4, we read the following. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. 
They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. But the men keep threatening, so the angels strike them with blindness. Lot and his family then flee from the city, and God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was not originally thought to have anything to do with sexuality at all, even if there is a sexual component to the passage we just read. But starting in the Middle Ages, it began to be widely believed that the sin of Sodom, the reason that Sodom was destroyed, was homosexuality in particular. This later interpretation held sway for centuries, giving rise to the English term sodomy, which technically refers to any form of non-procreative sexual behavior, but at various points in history has referred primarily to male same-sex relations. But this is no longer the prevailing interpretation of this passage, and simply because later societies associated it with homosexuality doesn't mean that that's what the Bible itself teaches. In the passage, the men of Sodom threatened to gang-rape Lot's angel visitors, who've come in the form of men, and so this behavior would at least ostensibly be same-sex. But that is the only connection that can be drawn between this passage and homosexuality in general, and there is a world of difference between violent and coercive practices like gang rape and consensual, monogamous, and loving relationships. No one in the church or anywhere else is arguing for the acceptance of gang rape. That is vastly different from what we're talking about. But the men of Sodom wanted to rape other men, so that must mean that they were gay, some will argue. And it was their same-sex desires, and not just their threatened rape, that God was punishing. But gang rape of men by men was used as a common tactic of humiliation and aggression in warfare and other hostile contexts in ancient times. It had nothing to do with sexual orientation or attraction. The point was to shame and to conquer. That is the appropriate background for reading this passage in Genesis 19 which notably is contrasted with two accounts of generous welcome and hospitality. That of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, and Lot's own display of hospitality in Genesis 19. The actions of the men of Sodom are intended to underscore their cruel treatment of outsiders, not to somehow tell us that they were gay. And indeed, Sodom and Gomorrah are referred to 20 times throughout the subsequent books of the Bible, sometimes with detailed commentary on what their sins were, but homosexuality is never mentioned or connected to them. In Ezekiel 16, verse 49, the prophet quotes God as saying, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They, didn't help, they did not help the poor and needy. So God himself in Ezekiel declares the sin of Sodom to be arrogance and apathy toward the poor. In Matthew 10 and Luke 10, Jesus associates the sin of Sodom with inhospitable treatment of his disciples. Of all the 20 references to Sodom and Gomorrah throughout the rest of Scripture, only one connects their sins to sexual transgressions in general. The New Testament book of Jude, verse 7, states that Sodom and Gomorrah, quote, gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. But there are many forms of sexual immorality and perversion. Even if Jude 7 is taken as specifically referring to the threatened gang rape from Genesis 19.5, that still has nothing to do with the kinds of relationships that we're talking about. Okay, so Matthew Vines does a very nice job of making his case um, to try to get us to consider the possibility that homosexuality was not, in fact, the reason that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Now, if you just look at this uh, argumentation in a fairly superficial way, his case seems actually, I think, very compelling. Um, but what we're going to start to notice as we move forward is that many of the arguments that are put forth by the revisionists um, often sound compelling on the surface, but when you begin to dig a little bit deeper, there's a lot more there. So first, let's start off by kind of summarizing Vines' position. First, he says that God was punishing Sodom for gang rape, not homosexuality per se. This is a constant theme 
of the revisionists. And I think that it's important to point out what he says because this leads him to the conclusion that uh, this gang rape, this same-sex violence um, that was happening, it was non-consensual, this has nothing to do with the modern concept of homosexuality and in particular with gay marriage. And so the argument he's trying to make is that this is not a good analogy. It's a weak analogy. And so what is being condemned in scripture is not so much homosexuality, but gang rape. And it just so happens that this is same-sex gang rape, but it's condemning the gang rape, not the homosexuality per se. And he mentions this passage in Ezekiel chapter 16, and I've included that in your notes here. And I would encourage you to read all of Ezekiel 16 because it's quite a lengthy uh, statement of judgment against Israel. And he is comparing and contrasting Israel with Sodom. And it's quite a condemnation against God's own people that he's saying your sins are even worse than Sodom's. And here's the section that Vines references. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Now, the revisionists will tell you, see, they're not condemned for homosexuality. It doesn't say anything here about homosexuality. Their problem is they're not taking care of the poor. They're not being hospitable. And God places great value on hospitality and helping the poor. Finally, the revisionists would say, the modern idea of same-sex marriage involves love, care, and respect. So Genesis chapter 19 is utterly irrelevant to the modern concept of monogamous gay marriage. So those are their major arguments about Genesis 19. Now let's take a look at the traditional response. Well, the first question I would want to ask Mr. Vines is, what is your evidence to support the claim that the dominant interpretation of Sodom was not about homosexuality until the Middle Ages. I think that this is a very bold claim. And so I went back and I did some research and I started reading some old sermons by John Christostom. And if you're not familiar with John Christostom, he's an early church father. I think he's from the fourth century, early in the fourth century. Highly, highly respected in the East, in the Eastern church. And he has a very fine set of sermons that have been preserved um, on the book of Romans. And his sermon on Romans chapter 1 actually goes into quite a lot of detail about the early church's view of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. As far as I can tell, there is no evidence to support this assertion that homosexuality was not the dominant view of the interpretation of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just not factually accurate. If you were to look into any ancient faith tradition, go on the Orthodox Wikipedia and type in Sodom or homosexuality, and you can read the historical position. Secondly, I would respond with this question. Was Sodom destroyed for gang rape, for homosexual gang rape? or being inhospitable to the poor? Or could they have been destroyed actually for multiple sins? And I think that this is quite likely because we did read that passage in Ezekiel that, home, the, that hospitality and their lack of concern for the poor is one of the reasons that God judged them and that God was going to judge Israel. But I think that there's more to the story than that. In fact, in the very context of Ezekiel chapter 16, the very next verse, which Matthew Vines does not mention, it says, they, meaning Sodom, were haughty, and they did an abomination, a toevah, which we're going to talk more about in a few minutes here, before me. So I removed them when I saw it. What is this toevah, this abomination, that they were also punished for? This is a very important question.
Let's look closer at the Jude 7 passage that Matthew Vines references. It says, likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring towns which indulged in sexual immorality. And I put the Greek word there in parentheses. Ek porneuo, which is where we get the word porn. It's the generic word in the Greek New Testament for all forms of sexual sin outside of marriage. Ek porneo. In the same way as the angels pursued unnatural desire. Now, in the context of Jude 7, if you read up a few verses, it's talking about how uh, there was some kind of inappropriate sex happening before Noah's flood. And that that was part of the reason why God sent that judgment. And then it uses a second example of God sending judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. And it talks about this in English, the, the translators in the version I was using said unnatural desire. Literally in Greek, it's heteros, heteros sarks. It really means other flesh. It's kind of a euphemism for sex that people should not have been doing. And it's probably a euphemism for homosexuality because that is the traditional interpretation of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And it is universally that interpretation throughout the writings of all the Jewish scholars go frontward and backward a hundred years in Second Temple Judaism. Every major Jewish scholar is going to interpret the Sodom and Gomorrah story as being about homosexuality. Jude came out of Judaism. That would have been his tradition and his understanding that he would have been taught about Sodom and Gomorrah since he was a boy. This unnatural desire, this heteros sarks, strange flesh, other flesh, are exhibited as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Whatever it was that Sodom and Gomorrah were doing was punishable by fire. Nowhere in scripture does it ever say that the sin of Sodom is gang rape. That is something that Matthew Vines and other revisionist apologists are reading into the text. What it does talk about is that what they were doing was a toeva. It was an abomination and it was sex of strange flesh, an unnatural desire. So let's continue our investigation further into what the Old Testament has to say. And let's look at the book of Leviticus. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. These are two very strong statements. And in fact, in the second statement, we find out that under the Mosaic law, homosexuality or engaging in homosexual behavior, at least, was uh, punishable by the death penalty. So it's something that was very, uh, a severe punishment usually means that it's something that's very important to God. Now, when we look at the context of the book of Leviticus, it's important to understand what in the world is happening in the book of Leviticus. Well, one of the things that's happening is God is setting aside a people and he's saying, you are going to be my special people and you are going to live differently than all of the other peoples that, that surround you. And so these laws are part of the laws that God gives the people to make them be different, to um, show the world something about the character of God. Now, if you recall earlier, I said that the moral laws are part of uh, the invisible furniture of the universe. They're things that are objectively true, and they're true because they flow out of the very nature and character of the creator. So there's something about homosexuality that is a violation of those moral laws. It's something that goes against the very character of God. And it's so against God's character that he says it will be punishable by death. There's one more observation I want to make about the text here. And this is a little bit later in Leviticus chapter 18. 
It says this, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. What I want us to see here is that from God's point of view, there is something that is such a violation of his character that this sin will actually pollute the land itself. It is, that's how serious this is to God. And I think that this, this verse, uh, this description of how the land will be polluted by all of these sins. And it's not just homosexuality. There's a whole list of sins that we're going to get to in just a moment. But I think that it's interesting from God's point of view, he does not want his people to become unclean, nor does he want his land to become unclean. And sometimes when our sin becomes so heinous, so vile, we do not only pollute each other, but we also can pollute the land. Okay, now let's look at these, these verses from the revisionist perspective. And once again, we're going to play a clip from Matthew Vines and hear his approach to explaining these verses. It's surprising that so many people continue to believe that these verses in Leviticus somehow form the heart of the theological debate about homosexuality. They are, in fact, of secondary significance to the later passage by Paul in Romans 1. And the reason for that isn't that their meaning is unclear, but that their context within the Old Testament law makes them inapplicable to Christians. Much of the New Testament deals with the issue of the place of the old law in the emerging Christian church. As Gentiles were being included for the very first time in what was formerly an exclusively Jewish faith, there arose ferocious debates and divisions among the early Jewish Christians about whether Gentile converts should have to follow the law, with its more than 600 rules. And in Acts chapter 15, we read how this debate was resolved. In the year 49 AD, early church leaders gathered at what came to be called the Council of Jerusalem, and they decided that the old law would not be binding on Gentile believers. The most culturally distinctive aspects of the old law were the Israelites' complex system, Israelites' complex dietary code for keeping kosher, and the practice of male circumcision. But after the Council of Jerusalem's ruling, even those central parts of Israelite identity and culture no longer apply to Christians. Although it's a common argument today, there's no reason to think that these two verses from the old law in Leviticus would somehow have remained applicable to Christians, even when other much more central parts of the law did not. In Galatians 6, Paul goes so far as to say that in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. He speaks of the old law as, quote, a yoke of slavery that he warns Christians not to be burdened by. In Colossians 2, Paul writes that through Christ, God, quote, forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. In the Gospels, Jesus describes himself as the fulfillment of the law. And in Romans 10, verse 4, Paul writes, Christ is the end of the law. Hebrews 8, verse 13 states that the old covenant is now, quote, obsolete because Christ is the basis of the new covenant, freeing Christians from the system of the old law, most of which was specific to the ancient Israelites, to their community and their unique worship practices. Christians have always regarded the book of Leviticus in particular as being inapplicable to them in light of Christ's fulfillment of the law. So while it is true that Leviticus prohibits male same-sex relations, it also prohibits a vast array of other behaviors, activities, and foods that Christians have never regarded as being prohibited for them. Okay, once again, we see that if you just look at this argument pretty superficially, this sounds like a compelling argument. Um, the idea that the Mosaic Law is not applicable to us today, that it's, it's old, it's canceled, it's, it, it, it's outdated, it was just for Israel. These are all things I hear Christians say all the time. And I think we're going we're gonna to talk in a few minutes here and try to clean up some of our, our words and how we think about these things. But from the revisionist point of view, they would say this, the Mosaic Law doesn't apply to Christians 
and it ended with Jesus. And Matthew Vines talks about what happened the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. The law is no longer binding. And he, he comes right out and he says it's inapplicable to Christians today. They also frequently point out that the traditional position picks and chooses which parts of the Mosaic law it affirms and which it regulates as culturally binding. They inevitably use three examples, so I've included those here in your notes. Uh, The wearing of mixed fabrics. We don't worry about the fabrics that we wear today. We blend cotton and polyester all the time. But there is an admonition in the Mosaic law not to wear mixed fabrics. The eating of shellfish is prohibited uh, in the Mosaic law, and yet many of us enjoy shellfish on a regular basis. The touching of the skin of an unclean animal. If you've ever worn certain types of leather, uh, you would be violating the Mosaic law. And they say, you know, you're so selective. You want to talk about the condemnation of homosexuality, but there's these other laws that you say, well, those just aren't culturally applicable to us today. You're picking and choosing. Now let's look at the traditional response to this. Now, we could have weeks and weeks of discussion about uh, the Mosaic Law and its relationship to the New Covenant. We don't have time to go into that, so I'm just going to give you the big picture nutshell uh, viewpoint of, of this. But the key question is, does the Mosaic Law apply to us today? And my answer might surprise you, but I'm going to say, yes, it does. And I'm going to explain that answer. The law gives us a picture of how to love God and love our neighbor. These principles, the principles behind each and every law are timeless, universal, and transcultural. It is not a culturally binding thing to talk about how to love God and love our neighbor. There are principles, timeless principles behind the laws, and these are part of what I've been talking about in the reflection of the character of God. So that's kind of the big picture issue on how I see the Mosaic law. So does it still apply to us today? Yes, God still wants us to love him and love our neighbor. The expression of that sometimes changes. So I've listed here some critical questions to ask yourself when you're thinking about the Mosaic law, when you're looking at a particular law. How did this law help the ancient Israelites love God? Did it, how did it help them worship God? This is all related to the priestly duties and the sacrifices and the festivals and the feast days. All of these were things that helped the people love God. How did this law help the ancient Israelites love their neighbor? For example, there's a law about having a fence on your roof. Well, how does that help me love my neighbor? Well, if, I'm, if I live in the Middle East and I go up on my roof at night and it's kind of an extra hangout place uh, and I'm up there with my neighbor maybe having dinner, I want to have a roof so we don't accidentally fall off. Well, maybe the timeless principle behind that is we don't go up on our roofs anymore uh, to hang out, but maybe I should have a fence around my pool to protect my neighbor. There's a timeless a universal transcultural principle behind having that uh, fence on their roof. Has the law been fulfilled by Christ and is no longer necessary? We call these ceremonial laws. This is what it means to love God. We don't go to the temple anymore. Now the temple of Jesus lives in us. We don't need a priest anymore. Jesus is our priest. We don't need a sacrifice anymore. Jesus is the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. So these laws in particular, they haven't been eliminated, but rather they've been fulfilled in Christ. It's not like we don't need a priest anymore. We do still need a priest. But we have the great high priest who is Jesus. We still need a sacrifice. But the sacrifice is in Jesus. Um, We still need a temple, but now we are that temple and Jesus is the temple in heaven. So we want to be very careful not to oversimplify 
our understanding of the Mosaic law. Is this a law that's repeated in the New Testament? There are many laws that are actually restated in the New Testament. Then we know for sure they still apply to us and how they apply to us. Has the law been repealed or changed or modified in the New Testament? For example, Sabbath keeping is a little bit redefined in Hebrews chapter 4. But God still wants us to honor the Sabbath, but we do that differently. So the main question we must ask about every law is, what is the timeless, universal, transcultural principle that this law uh, represents? And how do I see that expressed in the New Testament? Now, a question that we could ask is, how do the commands against same-sex relations connect to New Covenant Christians? Have these laws been repeated in the New Testament? Yes, I believe they have. And we will look at those passages next week. Have these laws been explicitly repealed or redefined? No, they have not. And so I think it is very um, overly simplistic to say that these laws are inapplicable to Christians. They're not. Looking at the Mosaic Law takes some discernment. It takes a little bit of thought. But if we dig a little bit deeper with our tools of how to really study the Bible, the questions that I've given you here will help you understand and appreciate the Mosaic Law better. So I have some more questions for the revisionist. Would you say that the prohibition of these acts are also culturally bound since they're listed in the near context of Leviticus 18.22. For example, the worship of other gods, the prohibition against incest, the prohibition against adultery, the prohibition against child sacrifice, the prohibition against bestiality. What about in the near context of Leviticus chapter 20? There's the prohibition again against child sacrifice, witchcraft, cursing your parents, again with adultery, again with incest, and again with bestiality. All of these things are in the near context of where this prohibition is about homosexuality. Well, certainly the revisionist does not want to take the position that all of these are inapplicable to Christians today, especially when none of these are with maybe the exception of witchcraft, are restated in the New Testament. The only way we get these prohibitions is if the Mosaic Law represents some sort of transcultural, timeless principles. And these things must be carefully discerned and carefully studied, but they are part of the invisible furniture of the universe part of the moral laws that flow out of the character and nature of the creator himself. Another response I would say at this point is that I can tell you why I believe these commands in Leviticus are timeless. But first, I have a question for you, Mr. Revisionist. Can you tell me if you think incest or child sacrifice are morally acceptable under certain circumstances because those things are also condemned in the near context of Leviticus 18 and 20. But they are not repeated in the New Testament. There is no verse in the New Testament that says we should not engage in child sacrifice or incest. So if we're going to say that all of these laws are inapplicable to us today, Mr. Revisionist, what is your foundation for saying that I should not engage in child sacrifice or incest? Okay, now let's look at a second aspect of the Leviticus passage. And that is this question of the Toavah. The revisionist will say the kind of homosexuality condemned in Leviticus isn't the same as what we see practiced today. It's part of an ancient religious ritual. It's part of uh, temple prostitution. God was condemning those religious practices, not homosexuality per se. 
The word toevah, or what we translate as abomination, refers to ceremonial impurity or idolatry, but not sexual immorality. So in other words, when Leviticus says that uh, homosexuality, sleeping with a man with a man is an abomination or a toevah, that what is being condemned is not, in fact, the homosexuality, but rather a religious ritual in which homosexuality was part of the religious ritual. Are you with me? So this is a very uh, critical distinction they want us to uh, adopt, that the condemnation is not homosexuality, the condemnation is against false worship. So how do we respond to that from the traditional point of view? Well, let's look closer at this word toavah. Toavah is used many times in the Old Testament. And I would refer you to the very fine article in the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. It's got a, a, a good discussion of the usages of this word toavah or abomination in it. And here is just a very brief summary of what we get from that. Toava refers to ceremonial uncleanness, idolatry, and moral impurity. And I include a reference there from Proverbs where the word toava is used to refer to moral impurity. So the question is, is what is the context of how this word is used in Leviticus 18 and 20? Well, I think it's all of the above. And the Mosaic law frequently does this. It will mix in ceremonial laws with moral laws with civil laws. And uh, because for the ancient Israelites, they didn't have those categories. Those are just sort of categories theologians have come up with after the fact to sort of big buckets to, to put different laws into. But Really, the context for Leviticus 18 and 20 is all of the above. Ceremonial uncleanness, idolatry, and moral impurity. We cannot make the case that toavah only refers to idolatry. We just cannot do it. There are too many examples in the Old Testament where toavah refers to moral impurity. So what I've tried to demonstrate today is that the relationship between a man and a woman is part of the created order. I've also tried to demonstrate that homosexuality in the Old Testament is condemned. When we look at the totality of scripture, when we look at these things in their natural setting and in their historical setting, they all align with the way that God set up the creation in the first place. One man and one woman. And that's not to say that we've always lived that perfectly. One man and one woman was before the fall. After the fall, some men had many wives. But that didn't, doesn't mean that that was God's will for them, that that was God's ideal for them. Even godly people fell into sin, but that didn't excuse the sin. God still judged them and he sent punishments. When we look at God's design for marriage, it is one man and one woman until death. We didn't always obey that. We engaged in divorce. Our hearts were hard. We took multiple partners because our hearts were hard. But God's ideal is one man and one woman until death. And that is the universal teaching of scripture. And it is the universal teaching of the Jewish religion and the Christian church, historically speaking. And that's not to say that people that name the name of Christ have not wandered away from that. But for 2,000 years, that has been the historic position. And it's one that aligns with the created order. I want to leave today with a reading from Mark chapter 10. And I want to talk about Jesus's call to each and every one of us. Going back to the themes that we talked about last week, none of us is without sin. Many of us have engaged in sexual sin. Some of us are still engaged in sexual sin, even today as you're watching this video. You might be a porn addict. You might be engaged in, a, in an adulterous relationship. 
None of us is without sin. But I want to read this passage in Mark chapter 10, because this is Jesus' call for all people who name the name of Christ. Starting in verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at him and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the call of discipleship for every Christian. See, what Jesus was telling this rich young man was he said he thought he had perfect obedience. He said, I'm not without sin. I don't have problems with that sin. But then Jesus zeroes in on the, the sin that he does have a problem with. And that's what stands between him and discipleship. And see, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I love you. I accept you just as you are. Just come to me. This is all there is. No, he says there's a cost for being a disciple. There's a cost for following me. In order to follow me, you have to be willing to give up your favorite sin. We challenged ourselves last week to think about what our favorite sin is. And I want to say to anyone who struggles with same-sex attraction, or if you are homosexual, and maybe you've been watching this message today, and you're wondering, does God love me? And I want to tell you, he does love you. But he loves you enough to not leave you in your sin. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sin, to die in your place. But more than that, he sent his Holy Spirit to come live inside of you so that you could be transformed and you could put your sins to death. Jesus didn't just die to forgive your sin. He died to get you free from your sin. And he wants to come in and be the boss of your life. But in order to be the boss of your life, you have to be willing to lay down your favorite sin. And maybe you feel the Holy Spirit right now working in your heart and you think, I need to do that. And whatever that is, whether that's porn addiction, whether you need to repent from, from that, whether you need to repent from a sinful relationship that you're in, an adulterous relationship with your, that you're in, Maybe you're in a relationship, you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or maybe you're in a same-sex relationship. It's time to repent. And Jesus is calling you right now. He's giving you an invitation. He's giving you an offer to be the boss of your life. But he's saying in this passage that we just read, it's going to cost you something. And not everybody is ready for that. Not everybody wants to follow Jesus. Some people just want to follow Jesus because it feels good in the moment. They want their stomachs to be filled. They want to feel loved. But that's not Christianity. That's not true Christianity. And if, if nobody's ever explained to you what Christianity really is about, that's what I want to do right now. Is I want to invite you to be a disciple of Jesus. Not just to accept him into your heart 
but to be a disciple and to lay down your favorite sin, to confess with your mouth that God is right about your sin and you are not, and to repent and to turn away from it. And you can just invite Jesus right now to forgive your sins, tell him you want to turn away from your sins, and invite the Holy Spirit to come inhabit all of your being, to transform your urges and your desires, and you will never be the same again. Trust me, the sacrifice of following Jesus is small compared to what you will get. Just like the disciples said, we have left everything to follow you, Jesus. Are you ready to follow Jesus for real? Are you ready to walk with him, to leave everything behind, including your favorite sin, and to trust him with all your heart? If you are, you can just talk to him right now. To be a disciple of Jesus is to confess or to agree that God is right about our sin. It means to repent or turn away from our sin, to put to death our sinful urges a little more every day, God helping us, and to allow Jesus to transform our thinking, our behaviors, our values, and our urges for his glory and the good of our neighbor. Amen.